I'd like to thank everybody for coming, and I'd like to get us started here. It's really, uh, I think we should go. I want to make sure we have enough time before any of you start to run off to the next class. It's um, a great pleasure for me to uh, introduce uh, William Shurman. We were talking uh, earlier this morning. I think it's been, we both think, 10 years maybe. It's been longer than we both thought since uh, uh, my former colleague Ned LeBeau and I uh, hoped and worked in the best we could to hire William here, but it didn't work out. So I'm really glad that we could bring him back. Uh, I could invite him here now as Director Mershon. I think his work is as interesting as there is at the intersection of political theory and international relations. His primary research interests have included the study of modern political thought, German political thought, democratic theory, legal theory, and basically, uh, most recently, normative uh, international theory, which is where I, I first ran across him when he was teaching at Pittsburgh about 10 years ago, I guess. And he's the author of several books, Liberal Democracy and Social Acceleration of Time, Uh, The Frankfurt School, Perspectives on Globalization, Democracy, and Law, and a book, Hans J. Morgenthau, Realism and Beyond, and he's published in all the best journals, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, As I mentioned, he taught at the University of Pittsburgh. He's currently now, of course, a professor at Indiana University. He has a BA in philosophy from Yale and a PhD in political science from Harvard. He's going to talk today on what cosmopolitans can learn from classical realists. William Shulman, thank you. Well, let me thank you all for coming today. I know it's a very busy time in the semester. In particular, I want to thank Richard Herman for the very gracious introduction, uh, Alex Went for the invitation, and last but by no means least, she's standing out there now. Um, uh, and Powers for all the organizational work for uh, getting me here and so on. It's a real honor to be here. I want to do two things uh, this afternoon. First, and relatively briefly, I want to suggest why the intellectual history of 20th century realism is badly in need of an overhaul. Realism, I want to argue, has been unfairly neglected by political theorists and philosophers. Normative theorists tend to look down their noses at realism, and I think this has been a big mistake for them. It also turns out, unfortunately, that empirical political scientists generally neglect not only the intellectual history of realism, but its normative preoccupations. Realism as a normative political theory sort of gets pushed to the wayside, not surprisingly, by people who are doing empirical work. And I want to suggest as well that this neglect has cost all of us with a serious interest in international politics something substantial. And then secondly, and I guess somewhat more ambitiously, I want to lay out some of the reasons why I think we should care about this, I think, pretty lousy intellectual history. As I'm going to try to argue, the dominant movement among present-day, normatively-minded international political theorists, cosmopolitanism, as it's appropriately called, can still learn a great deal, especially from mid-century classical realists. If you properly interpret classical realism, And as you're going to see in just a moment, I have some strong and rather idiosyncratic views about that. Realism points powerfully, I think, to some major weaknesses within contemporary cosmopolitanism, as well as some potential ways by which you might overcome those weaknesses. So I think there's something constructive that comes out of this as well. 
All right, so let me start with my revisionist intellectual history. Let me just, can you all hear me? I'm not sure. The echo is, okay, good. All right, according to the conventional and oftentimes, um, I think, quite critical view, realism is congenitally hostile to global reform. This is what you hear. This is what we learn. This is what we teach. International anarchy is a sort of ontological fact. That's a fancy way of saying you can't change it. Realism gets associated with amoral, Machiavellian, realpolitik. And not surprisingly, realists are accused oftentimes of doing a terrible disservice, both empirically and normatively, to the realities and um, potentialities of international law, as well as international morality. Realists allegedly believe that political leaders can and should do nothing except defend a more or less cramped interpretation of what, if you like realism, has been famously called the national interest. If you don't like realism, what infamously has been called the national interest. So realism, to make a long story short, is supposedly institutionally conservative, as well as normatively numb. Maybe it's even normatively dumb. If you look at some of the um, rather polemical remarks you'll find about it, uh, particularly among cosmopolitans. Uh, even more problematically, according to some critics, it can't make sense of globalization or of the emergence of ambitious new forms of global governance. For example, the emergence of an international human rights regime. Now, I've reached the conclusion, and I have to admit that I resisted doing this for a very long period of time because of my own biases and preconceptions about realism, many of which uh, I suspect, or some of which uh, I suspect you may share, um, uh, that this is a terrible intellectual mistake that gets in the way of grappling with some of the very powerful things that realism has had to say. So I would argue that what we need to do is salvage some, some core ideas of especially mid-century, or what's commonly and perhaps uh, somewhat problematically, we could talk about this categorization if you like, called classical realism. I don't buy the argument, this is implicit in what I'm gonna say, that um, realism has necessarily gotten better. I think there's actually a lot of power in some of these classical realist uh, writers that tends to get neglected and ignored in all sorts of ways. Now, the standard interpretation of realism is not a bad place to start if you want to make sense of some relatively recent varieties of realism. So if you're trying to figure out what Henry Kissinger has been about, the view that I summarized just a moment ago is not a bad place to look. If you're trying to figure out, by the way, what Kenneth Waltz, obviously a very impressive realist theorist, has been up to since the 1960s. What I just quickly summarized again is not a bad place to start. But I think it totally misses the boat in terms of Reinhold Niebuhr, Hans Morgenthau, E.H. Carr, the three most important figures in 20th century uh, international realism, as well, I think, as some lesser and um, sometimes forgotten, yet nonetheless quite powerful figures. Um, John Hertz, uh, I know, uh, I'm sure those of you doing IR, you've all heard of him. He's the guy who coined that wonderful idea of the security dilemma. Uh, Arnold Wolfers, maybe some of you have heard of him, a very important realist at mid-century, taught for a couple of decades at uh, Yale University. And last, but I don't know, maybe, maybe last and least, uh, a fellow by the name of Frederick Schumann, a very prominent realist, also at mid-century, a, a pundit, published widely in the New Republic, or The Nation, uh, very outspoken. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about him in a moment. He's actually sort of realist one-worlder, a very interesting guy, but he's also pretty much forgotten. Now, if you actually spend some time reading what these people had to say, and not just repeating what everybody tells you about them, and I know that's a trite criticism, but um, as I went through a lot of the secondary literature, I think a lot of this really is going on, and I'd be happy to flesh this out if you'd like me to do that. 
But if you look, read these people, what they actually were trying to do is much more interesting than what you may have been told. Yes, of course, the mid-century realists were critical of what they considered to be facile models of global reform, and they had many good reasons for this, it seems to me. Nonetheless, many of them ultimately did remain advocates, albeit very complicated advocates, of quite far-reaching reforms. Morgenthau, for example, forthrightly defended the idea of a world state, although, of course, he saw it as a long-term, and I think he thought it was a very long-term, uh, I think that's accurate, aspiration. E.H. Carr, like Morgenthau, believed that the nation-state was basically dying out, uh, slowly but surely, he thought. He wrote extensively in defense of regionalist conceptions of post-national order. In the 40s, he developed a very um, interesting model for a unified Europe along social democratic lines. This you'll find in these wartime writings um, that he did. He was trying to figure out what Great Britain should do after World War II, and this is where he does this. Schumann and some other mid-century realists were outspoken proponents of what they called global political unification. Uh, Schumann was involved with the One World movement. He was a sort of realist one-worlder. Niebuhr, uh, the most important figure, I think, by far uh, in the movement. Someone everybody mentions, even Barack Obama is mentioning him. Um, people actually don't read him in political science very much, but if you read him, he's very interested. Niebuhr debated at length and with great sympathy the prospects of some sort of post-national political order. As early as 1940, he argues that international anarchy ultimately had to be overcome. Uh, he also saw this as a long-term aspiration. What these people had to say about international morality, international law, also turns out to be much more nuanced than they typically get credit for. They repeatedly noted that international morality, international law, were in fact widely respected, even during moments of crisis, even during moments of wartime. The laws of war, for example, are typically respected. So I don't think you find the sort of deep anti-legalism, the deep hostility. I mean, they don't use the category human rights for the most part for all sorts of reasons we could talk about, particularly because that wasn't the dominant way of talking about these things in the 40s and 50s, but they're not hostile per se to human rights. I mean, a real contrast to me is if you pick up, some, if you pick up John Mersheimer's great book, um, what's it, I'm forgetting the title now. The, the, yeah, there's, there's actually nothing there on international law, international morality. Go and compare that to Morgenthau, uh, other people I've mentioned. It's just a tremendous contrast here. Um, also, if you look at their political ethics, it turns out to be very uh, demanding, stated in the most general terms. Uh, and I realize this may only make sense to those of you who have um, done a lot of political philosophy, but I'd be happy to sketch it out later on. Basically, what they're trying to do is defend a Weberian ethic of responsibility while circumventing um, what people will call the non-cognitivism, uh, the relativism, the skepticism that you find in Weber's original moral and political thinking. So they're trying to synthesize typically a very traditionalistic conception of morality. This is what you get in Niebuhr and you get this in Morgenthau with the sort of ethic, a consequentialist ethic of responsibility. But to accuse them, as uh, they regularly are accused by prominent people, uh, Michael Doyle, for example, Charles Bites, I mean, very important people, but this is what they say. They say the realists were moral skeptics and relativists. I think this is wrong. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, right? Now, a lot of the literature likes to depict the mid-century realists as having imported so-called dramatic, whatever that might mean, and even Bismarckian power politics into English language discourse. So a great deal is made of the German background to 20th century realism. Indeed, its representatives were disproportionately German and German-Jewish refugees, as well, it turns out, as first-generation German-Americans, um, which I think is important because they maintained 
deep ties to German intellectual culture. Um, examples of this category would be Niebuhr. He's a first-generation um, German-American. Uh, Kenneth Waltz, actually, also. And then this fellow I mentioned, Frederick Schumann. But again, if you dig into the story in a serious way, you discover something quite different from what I think people typically expect. There's no question that there's a German tenor to realist theory. But I think it's chiefly Weimar Germany, and even more specifically, the very complicated and oftentimes contradictory, but basically left-leaning, all right, again, this is not an uncontroversial claim, intellectual and political traditions of Weimar, which deeply influenced mid-century realists. Some of the key figures for the classical realists were people such as Hans Kelsen, maybe the most important 20th century European legal theorist. He was a sort of left liberal legal positivist. Um, Karl Mannheim, the uh, social theorist who taught at Frankfurt and then emigrated to Great Britain. He's hugely influential on on E.H. Carr. Someone I'm I'm sure you haven't heard about. There's no reason you should have. Uh, Hugo Sinsheimer. Uh, Sinsheimer was a left-wing Weimar lawyer. He was Morgenthau's teacher and very close to Morgenthau. Um, He was one of the authors of the Weimar Constitution, and more specifically, he was the author of the expressly social democratic elements of the Weimar Constitution. As you all know, there was a revolution in Germany in 1918. What comes out of that is a a constitutional document, which in many ways is quite radical, and Sinsheimer was sort of the legal mastermind behind a lot of that. Last but not least, very important figure uh, in the background here, the radical theologian Paul Tillich, Niebuhr was very close to Tillich. Niebuhr helped bring Tillich. He also had to flee Nazi Germany. Um, He helped bring him to uh, New York City. They both saw themselves as Christian socialists. They both shared a certain critique of Marxism. Also, Arnold Wolfers, Wolfers, it turns out, was uh, part of the religious socialist movement. That's what they called themselves, which Tillich uh, was the leader of. Now, some people have asked me, um, you know, or people who know me, friends, okay? You know, what, what, how did you get interested in classical realism? This doesn't make any sense. You do stuff on 20th century Germany, and you're interested in the, all those strange left-wing German thinkers. Well, it turns out that the intellectual and social world out of which much of classical realism has emerged is not all that different from the social intellectual universe out of which many of these strange left-wing German thinkers have emerged. The classical realists, uh, at least as young men, um, were pretty much all on the left. I mean, they were all social democrats or socialists. Uh, Morgan Fowle is one exception here. I think he was always sort of a left liberal, uh, but this is complicated. Um, they were all deeply immersed in the intricacies of German and especially left-leaning German thought and even more specifically German legal thought. They were all very committed as uh, young men to far-reaching social reform and in many cases uh, global reform as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why this reformist impulse never really dissipates from uh, realist thought. And I think once we know this about them, the story begins to look very different from the conventional story that we all sort of grew up with. All right, so much for my brief and, I admit, tendentious foray (laughs) into intellectual history. Um, Why retell the intellectual history? Why should you care about this stuff, okay? Well, here's why. I think there are some major themes and arguments within classical realism we speak powerfully to contemporary debates within international political theory. And let me try to address two of the contributions I think the classical realists can make today to these debates, and particularly to debates about cosmopolitanism. Just to give you some pointers, um, the first concerns uh, what we might call supranational society, or if you prefer, global society, and I'll explain what I mean by that in just a couple of moments. 
And the second concerns the proper role of, you can choose your word here, statehood, stateness, uh, government in the context of global governance. What's the function of old-fashioned statehood in any system of global governance? As I'm sure many of you know, cosmopolitan international theory is almost always juxtaposed to realism. For the cosmopolitans, be they Rawlsians or Habermasians or what have you, obviously cosmopolitanism takes many different forms. I just heard that Martha Nussbaum was recently here, so you were exposed to her form of this. Um, But from their perspective, the realists are pretty much, and you have to excuse the crude formulation, but I think it's appropriate given the way in which they're polemicized against, they're the bad guys. Well, I don't buy this, and I don't think you should buy it either. It turns out there's a great deal of theoretical overlap between the two traditions in ways which are actually quite interesting. The realists accepted the fundaments, for example, of what Thomas Poga, a very important cosmopolitan political philosopher, and others have described as moral cosmopolitanism, which in the simplest terms refers to some sort of robust ideal or commitment to the equal value or equal worth of all human beings. In other words, a sort of moral universalism. They were also legal and political cosmopolitans, or if you prefer, uh, this is also a term you'll find in the literature, institutional cosmopolitans, which is just a way of saying that they endorsed, uh, again, as long-term goals, I think they endorsed, ambitious models of global law and global governance, despite what we typically think of them. Furthermore, the realists had something to say, which I think speaks directly to some striking weaknesses within contemporary cosmopolitanism. Let me take David Held's very influential model of what he calls cosmopolitan democracy. Now, I I, uh, don't know if everybody's familiar with this, but let me just give you the quick version of, well, let me tell you what he's doing. I mean, basically, he has come up with what I think is the most ambitious model in the last 20 years of how and why you might go about extending, basically, liberal democracy to the global level. And the book, at least within political theory, has been quite influential. Now, I think many of the classical realists would at least have sympathized with Held's proposals for a global democracy. Again, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but they also were committed ultimately to far-reaching global reform and ultimately far-reaching liberal democratic global reform, although they were critical of what they took to be superficial ideas of how to get there. Now, as I'm sure many of you know, um, many people, if you've read Held and you look at the debate about Held, uh, many people are quite skeptical of what he's tried to do, Held's tried to do. Most obviously, if you look at his book, it's very hard to see, and even if you haven't read the book, you're going to see this point quickly, I think. It's hard to see how cosmopolitan democracy could realistically happen, right? how it could actually come into being. Uh, Now, if you look at Held's argument about how to get there, how to get to some sort of global liberal democracy, I think it's pretty weak. He basically says, look, um, you know, there's already a universal commitment pretty much to democracy out there. Okay, there's some exceptions, you know, North Korea and so on, but it's pretty much universal. Uh, And despite what communitarians, for example, are telling us, democracy does not need, this is a quote, political and cultural integration in the form of a consensus on a wide range of beliefs, values, and norms, end of quote. So global democracy, in other words, shouldn't be that hard to achieve because it doesn't presuppose a sort of consensus which we clearly do not have and are not likely to get at the global level. And then he says, well, you know, maybe maybe a severe crisis, that's actually the term he uses, will come along. We'll have a major war, maybe an economic downturn. This might lead enough political movements, uh, political elites, to recognize that global democracy is the way to go if you want to deal with global governance. And this argument, 
uh, just as a tangential point here, this always struck me as a, an updated version of this disastrous old left-wing argument about a cataclysm being a good way to bring about social change. I mean, obviously, uh, that's not the case. We know that from history, but there's a bit of that going on here. All right. Anyhow, that's that's sort of what Held is doing. Um, and then you have critics of Held, of course, lots of them. Um, communitarians, um, nationalists, and by that I mean people like the uh, Oxford political theorist David Miller. I'll explain what he's up to a bit more in just a moment. Uh, small R Republicans, sort of participatory democratic Republicans. Now, obviously, these people have a lot of different things to say, but in general, they're skeptical because they believe that democracy does require vastly more robust forms of political and cultural integration than held and other cosmopolitans typically want to admit. So Miller, for example, argues that robust national identity is essential both to successful democratic politics and to the quest for social justice. He's very skeptical of any attempt to extend democracy beyond the nation state or extend the welfare state beyond the nation state because without a deep sense of national identity, a deep sense of national belonging, people are going to lack sufficient motivation to do the sorts of things that we expect of them within at least welfare state liberal democracies. It's a very complicated, interesting argument, but one thing I'll just mention, he says, is you know, if you want to have a welfare state, for example, I mean, there has to be some sense of... Uh, basic social solidarity with people with whom you're going to or to whom you're going to redistribute wealth, okay? Um, I think, by the way, that's absolutely correct. And then his more controversial claim is to say, well, national identity is essential to that. That's how we've gotten that historically. I think that, by the way, is also correct. Um, and here's where it gets very, I think, controversial. It has, it's going to stay that way. We always are going to need to have some sort of national identity in order to undergird the social solidarity that is necessary to the welfare state. All right, so that's the, sort of, that's the sort of argument you hear as a criticism of Held. Where then do my classical realists come into the story here? Well, they often argued, it turns out, against models of global reform that don't look all that different um, from Held's. Um, and there's a reason for this. They were debating, writing, working in the 40s and 50s in the context, as I'm sure many of you know, of a lively debate about global reform. You had the One World Movement. Uh, you had people like Carl Jaspers, Bertrand Russell, right, arguing for a global state uh, in the aftermath of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So these sorts of questions are not only on their minds, but they're engaging with them. And I think what they said in that context remains, uh, at least in two ways, interesting. Okay, And here's, the again, the first one. Any successful political community, indeed, has to be socially and politically integrated in many obvious and also less than obvious ways. Unless you're going to have a potentially frightening, top-heavy leviathan. Uh, Morgenthau never minced his words here. He said, unless you're going to have a totalitarian monster with clay feet. I think the imagery there is wonderful. In other words, a government repeatedly required to use force so that people follow the most basic rules of social and political life. And, of course, nobody wants this. Countless formal and informal integrative mechanisms have to be at work within society to motivate and encourage people, sometimes unthinkingly, sometimes spontaneously, to engage in a vast range of activities that are essential to any functioning liberal democracy. To mention one trivial example, my example, not Morgenthau's, but I think this is in the spirit of the argument, one should not want and probably cannot want to have an IRS employee standing behind everybody's back as they do their taxes, of course. That would a disaster and um, also unrealistic. Any functioning legal order, as particularly a liberal democratic one, arguably, is going to rely on people for the most part to respect formal and informal norms without coercive authority, in a sense, being in their face by necessity. We all know this. Now, the realist then pointed out 
that at least in the case of successful liberal democracies, we typically see the requisite levels of political and social integration operating at the national level. Unfortunately, they claimed, we don't have sufficient evidence of them able to operate effectively at the supranational or global levels. We do not yet have an identifiably supranational society. This is the term Morgenthau uses. Carr um, and Niebuhr say world community, but they mean the same thing. We do have, they said, uh, an international society of nations, but that's not quite the same thing. That doesn't imply the same uh, immediately global uh, level of social integration that you, they argue you do see uh, in, at the level of the nation. Unfortunately, without a robust supranational society, without a global society that performs or can perform the manifold integrative and motivational functions regularly performed by existing national societies, any prospective post-national political community risks becoming this top-heavy, um, uh, highly coercive leviathan, which scared them. A big part, they say, of any prospective supranational society would be some widely shared sense of fair play, a widespread belief backed up by hard facts and over time backed up by experience that some measure of justice is going to be meted out even when the powerful face off against the weak. And they argued, and I think this is still true, that is lacking clearly at the supranational level. Now, there's a very important discussion in this context, and I only want to allude to it, um, about Thomas Hobbes here. And I, but I do want to mention it because I think it is valuable in terms of getting a sense about what they're trying to do. Uh, they criticize Hobbes, actually. This is one reason why I think it's wrong to, to describe them as Hobbesians. They're not Hobbesians in any simple sense of the term. Hobbes is criticized for overstating the unifying uh, and integrative capacities of state sovereignty. And what the heck does that mean? Well, if you go back to the ABCs of Thomas Hobbes, one of the arguments you get, right, is um, if you want to have a common sense of justice, if you want to have a functioning political community, you need state sovereignty. This is what they're referring to. Well, they think that ar- they, they argue that that argument is, is it's one-sided. It overstates what state sovereignty can do. States, stateness or state sovereignty is a necessary but not sufficient condition, clearly, for any functioning political community. If you want law, if you want other norms to be fairly and equally enforced, you're going to need state sovereignty ultimately. However, state sovereignty has many complex social presuppositions if it's going to work. So you can already see how they're fighting a two-front war. They're arguing against what they think to be a sort of naive statism, which they think is often behind many models of global reform. You know, the idea that we just have to get the right global institutions and they're going to work. This is why they're making this argument. At the same time, they're criticizing um, those who think there's no role for state sovereignty. And I think both of these things are actually quite relevant in ways I'm going to try to sketch out now. Now, a lot more could be said here, but let me just mention the things I like about the move that the realists, at least in my reconstruction of the story, take. First, I think you can read them as accepting implicitly what arguably is the rational kernel, the good thing, of the communitarian and republican critiques of cosmopolitanism without buying into a lot of the problematic normative baggage that typically comes along with those critiques. So I don't think the realists privilege normatively static forms of political identity. I think communitarians often do that today. They don't see political identity as something more or less pre-given or unchosen. Um, There's also, in my view, no principled normative defense of the nation state or of national identity, although they do believe that national identity historically has been crucial to social integration. So they think national identity has been crucial to the ways in which we have integration at the national level, obviously. But they don't seem to think, and this is how they're different from nationalists, 
like this fellow Miller, that that's essential or necessary. That's at least how I'm reading them. Okay? And I'd be happy to back this up, of course, with textual support. They also don't, as I think um, the small R Republicans, participatory Democrats today do, insist on arguably exaggerated ideals of political participation, which probably cannot be fulfilled at the post-national level. Uh, I, I'm skeptical that you can have you know, the kind of face-to-face democracy. Uh, you, we don't even have it at the national level, right? You're not going to have it at the global level. Yet like many critics today, um, they uh, rightly, I think, worry about what the social theorist Craig Calhoun has also described, this is a quote, as the thin conception of social life, thin conception of commitment, thin conception of belonging that you find in too much of cosmopolitan theory. So let me see if I can just summarize this. I mean, I, what I find interesting here is I think they allow us to see the ways in which cosmopolitanism, whatever its normative appeal, and it's certainly normatively appealing to me, has not yet provided a sufficient theory of what I want to call political society a theory which allows us to make sense of all the very important things that go on at the social level below the state that are essential. I mean, it's a very simple point, although obviously a simple point which raises all kinds of questions uh, about, you know, how political communities end up thriving. Questions about, I mean, so you'd have to have a theory of motivation. You'd have to talk about what are the different elements of social integration, how are they assured. This just is not in contemporary cosmopolitanism. Here's a second thing I like about what the realists do. This idea of supranational society then leads the realist to think hard about something else that tends to get neglected by cosmopolitans. How might we strengthen supranational society? And if, that, if, that's, if you want to have a post-national political community, I think the realists ultimately did, uh, but they thought you first had to build up supranational society. Well, how do you do this? Well, the realists were very skeptical, uh, and you won't be surprised to hear this, uh, about many proposals for global reform because they thought many of them naively believe that if you get the right institutions at the post-national or even the global level, the right legal agreements, again, the social presuppositions of governance will automatically follow. If you think this is a caricature, go and pick up Daniel Arshibuji's latest book. I just reviewed it for perspectives. It's called The Global Commonwealth of Citizens. He actually makes the argument. Um, he says, look, I know people, he's a, he's a global Democrat, he says, I know people are worried that there's not a global demos. There's no global people yet. Got some good news, he says. Don't worry about it. We'll get the right global institutions, and a global demos will emerge. I mean, this is precisely the sort of naive argument. I think it's a very naive argument um, that the realists were onto. Rather than this sort of top-down approach, as the realists called it, uh, we need a bottom-up approach. We have to think, and of course institutions play a role in this. Of course law plays a role in this of how we could contribute to developing supranational forms of political and social integration, which might do at least some of the things that their parallels have done historically at the national level. This is why many of the classical realists became fascinated by David Mitrany, another forgotten figure I think is very interesting, David Mitrany's functionalist model of global reform. They thought the international functionalists were right to emphasize the virtues of beginning with modest forms of cross-border cooperation, doing things that states by themselves cannot do, but which they have to do, uh, and over time, um, somehow building up uh, gradually uh, a sort of supranational society. Over time, the realists follow functionalists in arguing interstate cooperation could create the shared social tissue, this was Niebuhr's phrase, that any viable post-national political community is going to have to have, and best of all, this could happen. Um, now, this may have been naive, but this is the argument, without many political actors even being aware that sovereignty is being fundamentally transformed because the realists thought the functionalists were right in terms of people are going to be very hesitant to hand over a lot of the sort of 
uh, symbolism we associate with sovereignty. So you have to do this in, almost, in a way that's almost going on behind the backs of political actors. All right, let me mention then um, the other major way in which I think uh, classical realism remains relevant to contemporary debates. So I've been addressing how the realists criticize an extreme statism, how they criticize a sort of bad Hobbesianism that overstates the integrative capacities of, of political institutions and of state sovereignty. And as I've tried to explain, um, this is why they developed, I think, some very interesting and typically overlooked reflections on this idea of supranational society. But as I alluded to just a moment ago, they had another target in mind as well. Again, they're fighting a war on two fronts, and I think both, both fronts for us are relevant. Even if statehood or stateness cannot willy-nilly create viable political communities, that's part of the argument, right? The classical realists also nonetheless thought that states remained indispensable. Statehood is an insufficient yet ultimately indispensable condition of any viable liberal democratic political community at the national or post-national or even global level. Now, if you look at contemporary cosmopolitanism, this old-fashioned view must seem passé. It's widely considered anachronistic to believe that post-national democracy would require something like post-national statehood. So if you pick up cosmopolitan uh, writers, uh, David Held, I mentioned, Daniel Archibuji, also Jürgen Habermas, also many, many others, too numerous to mention, they're now basically arguing that we ultimately can have democratic global governance without global government. In other words, you can have new forms of democracy beyond the nation state that do not require corresponding forms of post-national statehood. Now, uh, and so, for example, many of them believe that the democratization of the EU, the full-scale democratization of the EU or the greater democratization of the EU, doesn't have to go hand-in-hand hand with some sort of European state. You don't need a European federal republic, for example. This is the concrete context in which the argument is often made. Now, I think the realists would have been skeptical of this feature of cosmopolitanism as well. Um, in striking contrast to this presently fashionable view, they had some old-fashioned views about the state and government and uh, its indispensability, and their old-fashioned views, which I'm going to defend at the risk of being sort of stodgy and old-fashioned. I want to try to explain why I think their skepticism would have been justified. Take Archibuji's very ambitious model of global democracy. Again, this is a the global commonwealth of citizens. He's a, I should have said this before, uh, he's an Italian thinker, also gotten lots of attention, worked very closely with David Held. Now, if you look at his book, what he does is he tries to contrast his model to that of competing ideas of a global federal republic, which he doesn't like, by asserting that his model could circumvent the ominous specter of a world state. This is always looming in the background in this argument, uh, outfitted with a centralized monopoly and violence. So he says we could have final coercive power I quote, distributed among several actors and subjected to the judicial control of existing and suitably reformed international institutions, end of quote. This is achievable, he says, because cosmopolitan democracy only demands entrusting a minimal list of regulatory tasks to global institutions. If you go and you look at his minimal list, it's not minimal at all. Here it is. Um, the authority to regulate the use of force, strengthen uh, power to strengthen the self-determination of peoples, secure cultural diversity, uh, monitor the internal affairs of states to ensure fidelity to democracy and human rights. That's a modest task, right? And encourage, I'm sorry if I'm being polemical, and encourage what he calls the participatory management of global problems. In short, he calls, like many cosmopolitans, for a massive augmentation of global decision-making and global democracy, but no corresponding increase in global-level state capacities. 
But what happens when a democratized and dramatically strengthened UN, and that's basically what I think he and many of the cosmopolitans are calling for, tries to enforce the legal prohibition on torture, for example, and this is not unfortunately simply an academic example, against the US or against other great powers uh, which have violated it? What happens when redistributive social and economic measures are supposed to be pursued even in opposition to an outvoted minority of, of powerful, wealthy countries? How the dispersion of coercive authority could ever get the job done, I don't think ever really gets explained very well in his argument or in other arguments. As the classical realist, I think, correctly recognized, a crucial minimum of state power is going to be necessary um, for any post-national democracy for the same reasons it's necessary at the national level. Unless you can show, and I don't think we can show, that democracy beyond the nation states could somehow free itself from the specter of intense political conflict it's very hard to see how it could flourish without an effective system of common enforcement. In other words, without something like what we have traditionally described as a monopoly on legitimate violence. Although I have to tell you, I am a little bit uncomfortable with that traditional way, that traditional language from, of course, Max Weber. But I think it does capture something crucial nonetheless. As you all know, an essential function of that monopoly has been to provide political communities with an effective capacity to implement generally agreed upon policies even when powerful groups resist them which, by the way, happens even in the context of well-integrated national societies in the nation-state. Of course, as the realists also argued, non-state mechanisms, what the realists called supranational society, uh, would have to play a paramount role in mediating and mitigating explosive conflicts at the supranational level. At the same time, I don't think we can deny that the state's monopoly on violence historically has helped guarantee both the fairness of basic liberal democratic political procedures and the enforcement of policies generated by them. Look, if you want to have post-national democracy, um, you, this is what you have to think about. I think you have to think seriously about post-national statehood. And of course, that raises all kinds of enormously complicated practical and theoretical questions. But to pretend that you can't, you can ignore those questions is like trying to have your cake and eat it as well. It just doesn't make sense to me. So a cosmopolitan democracy would never be plagued by violent secessionist movements. Citizens of a future post-national democracy, I guess because they don't need to have a state as a mediating force, would not have to worry about individuals or social groups who refuse to make contributions, financial or otherwise, to the common good. A prospective post-national democracy apparently doesn't have to be concerned too much about local movements or interests which violate the rights of racial, religious, or ethnic minorities. Apparently, you're not going to have intense social conflicts which ultimately have to be tamed by state institutions which in the history of every liberal democracy that's been decent, right, at times has had to come down on the side of the weak and the vulnerable against those who de facto may possess more uh, power, non-state forms of power. In short, I think the realists would have been rightly skeptical of what I think is a, a sort of knee-jerk anti-statism that plagues a great deal of present-day cosmopolitan theory. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. Um, let me just say something very quickly, but hopefully clearly. It may just provoke, um, well, that would be great if it provokes questions, but it may generate confusion. I hope not. Um, I think the realists would have said, I well, I think one should say, there, there, of course, is a place for global governance without government. Okay? Um, we can talk about this. However, um, we are talking here, I'm talking, and these thinkers are talking about a specific type of governance. They're talking about democracy. Okay? We're talking about post-national, even global democracy. And I don't think we should kid ourselves there. I think there, government is crucial. So there's a, a, an argument that I'm trying to make about the indispensability of government to democracy. Okay? 
Um, if we want ambitious and meaningful democratization beyond the nation state, for legitimate reasons, people may want this. Okay, we're And if you want this to be where egalitarian rights and procedures are going to be consistently protected, where the results of the process are going to be systematically enforced, even if powerful groups don't like them, and where the weak are protected from the strong, we ultimately need to achieve state or at least state-like institutions at that level. Let me thank you for your patience. Um, obviously, this is very much a work in progress. I guess that's the reason why I was ranting a little bit. Maybe I'm covering that up. But I'm looking forward to your comments and especially to your criticism. So thank you very much. <laughs> just, yeah. yeah, great. Okay. Give you all a chance to. Yeah, Mike, go ahead. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't explain very well. Yeah. <laughs> no. no it, it, it made a fair bit of sense to me. I, I just wonder whether the um, the folks who I, I don't know this literature actually all that well. It's a little bit of Hamas's version. Yeah. My understanding of what he would say along these lines is that the analogy that he made between uh, the internal dynamics mm -hmm. of working in a liberal democracy and let's say a federation of liberal democracies, so let's say in the EU, yeah. you're treating that a little bit as a category in the state too. That the Germans are just sending money to the Irish yeah. um, and the Spaniards. And we can certainly imagine situations where they might balk at some point mm -hmm. um, paying their taxes. Um, but the, the, we're, we're pretty much presuming that we have a federation of well-consolidated liberal democracies that are functioning well yeah. and more, where norms have been pretty powerfully internalized, where there, there just aren't examples, analogs to um, the crazy person in the street that needs to be suppressed mm -hmm. by a police force. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, th th there might be some enforcement problems at the margin. Yeah. That we can actually accomplish a fair bit, and that you're trading on a bit of a category in states. Okay. Um, intra liberal democracy. That, that basically the crazy people in a, let, let's say, skinheads in Germany are taken care of by the German government. Yeah. Um, uh, and that the state, these, we don't really expect there to be rogue states, states in these confederations, mm -hmm. let's say just at the EU level, um, that are fully analogous to what to, to the kinds of really heavy-handed coercive imposition of power that we have yeah. have to enforce within states. Yeah, that's a great question. Let me just try to break it up. I mean, Habermas makes a theoretical <coughs> argument, which I think initially sounds quite plausible. Um, and this, you'll be happy to hear this. This isn't one of these Habermas, Habermas arguments. This is a good sort of history of state building argument, all right? He says there's no reason we should presuppose that a post-national state, okay? Now, he likes that idea. He wants a, I mean, he likes post-national democracy, so he's thinking about post-national political organization. There's no reason to presuppose its history should look like the history of nation building, okay? Why should we assume that? That's dogmatic. That's the first step. Then the second step, and here's where I differ, is to say, well, therefore, we can disconnect the idea of state sovereignty from, he says, dem democratic constitutionalization that those two ideas do not have to be seen as necessarily related to each other. Now, um, I just think this is wrong, the second part of it. I think if you're going to have, and, and this is, and then I'm going to try to answer the particular, the particular points you made, um, you're going to have a robust uh, democracy. You're going to have to have institutions outfitted to resolve the sorts of, sorts of conflicts that you're going to have in democracies, typically. Now, it's true. In the U EU, I, I think this is absolutely correct. There's a lot of governance going on. Okay. Um, however, if you are serious, it seems to me, about extending 
the extent of that governance, and if you're serious about making it much more richly and deeply democratic, I think you are going to start having, um, for all sorts of familiar reasons, conflicts which ultimately are going to rely on some sort of organized force potentially resolving them. Okay, this is this is where I think the difference also between the two of us is. Now, it's true the Germans send money to Ireland, um, they send it to Greece. Um, it's actually a good example. I don't know if it works to your advantage, though, because they're getting very upset about this. They don't like this anymore, and there's a bit of a backlash going on. You know, so it's true. You see that. I mean, you you know, you you see that sort of thing. But my argument uh, has to be that if you're going, if that's going to happen, redistribution is going to happen in a sustained way. Okay, ultimately, you're going to have to have some sort of post-national community at the European level, such that people identify enough with other Europeans, okay, that they're willing to do this. I'm not sure we're there yet. We could argue about that. I'd like to think we are, but I'm not sure about that. And then also, ultimately, you're going to have to have, um, the, again, the effective mobilization of coercive powers when conflicts arise. I, I just happen to think it's very naive to believe that you can have a political community that, gets, that doesn't have that. All right. Now, let me just try to make that a little bit more... Um, complicated and hopefully a little bit more nuanced. I mean, it's true, you have the, you know, when, when ha- things are enforced all the time without um, stateness being necessary. I mean, this room, there are norms, you know, <laughs> governing us. But, I, you know, this is, it's an old-fashioned democratic theory argument. When you're talking about large pluralistic communities, and the EU certainly would be one, where there are intense conflicts, there has to be some possibility for norms to be backed up by Muscle, ultimately. Now, the real debate here might be uh, between, you know, so, I mean, the real question might be, what does this actually have to mean? And I said to you very briefly during the talk, I don't like this term monopoly on legitimate coercion because I think it conjures up misleading in the, misleadingly in the minds of lots of people a sort of hyper-centralized accumulation of um, violence. And that's problematic. I mean, you, you don't have that in... Um, modern states. I mean, you know, you look at the United States. Uh, you have a very complicated way in which violence is mobilized during crises. It's decentralized in some ways. You know, it's not like the president sits in his office and just says, okay, everyone go and do I mean, it's very complicated. So that's why I don't like that conceptual language. And that's why potentially it's misleading. But I do think we're going to have, have to have a monopoly on legitimate violence in the sense of some capacity to mobilize what I like to call predominant power resources, which aren't, that doesn't just mean violence, instruments of violence, against those who refuse to follow the rules. I mean, that, that element of modern statehood has to be there. And I have a hard time seeing how you're going to have that in an EU. Habermas says it's okay that the EU has a decentralization of the monopoly on violence. I find that very problematic. I mean, because it just seems to me at some point you may have some serious conflicts, right? As you had, by the way, in the United States before the Civil War, you know, before we became a much more unified federal state. Yeah, sorry, I just, you, you hit a raw nerve there. I thought you asked exactly the right question. That's why I'm going on like this for too long. So. It's a perfect answer, and it actually pushes me, I think, to some distance back It seems that um, to the German case, it seems we, we just had the biggest economic meltdown in yeah. 70 years, you know, 80 years. Yeah. Um, and the Germans are grumbling, but they're not pulling the money out of Greece and Ireland, right? So yeah. I, I guess I would suggest actually this is a pretty good test. Yeah, although the Germans, yeah, the Germans are an exception, though. There. I mean, there's particular German history which leads them to do this, okay? It seems to me. Other years, yeah. I don't want to get you know, pulled down. In, in Let's take the English. Let's force them to chip in. See, the, the, the British, they work better for my argument. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, so yeah. um, I, I guess I understand. So, so I would agree that 
you're only gonna be able to accomplish so much. But I, I guess the argument would be, one of the things that gets, that gets mobilized to be, precisely in the yeah. spirit that you're talking about, that isn't the classical of, of a police force or an army coming in, um, is that we're just too deep into it with each other. It's mm. not plausible to pull out, right? But before yeah. the, the Civil War, Texas, Texas could really yeah. legitimately think of seceding. Now you get when you just think that the government's yeah. a nutter um, when yeah. he, he floats this idea, largely because it just seems preposterous, yeah. not because federal forces would come yeah. in um, and, and resist it. It's just it's, it's a non-starter. See, my ar argument based on the classical realists would be you have to have both. What you're describing there is what I'm calling society, right? You have, I mean, it's, a, it's maybe the wrong term for this, right? I mean, you might call it shared political identity, all right? I don't like that term because I think that doesn't focus adequately on all of the different, work, all of the different working mechanisms that a coherent political community has to have. Identity misses something there, right? But if you want to use that term, fine. That's why people think it's ludicrous because people in Texas see themselves as Americans, right? And we see them as Americans. That's one aspect of this. That's the social integration part. But I also think, you know, I don't think we should kid ourselves about this. I mean, you know, um, that, in a, you know, your point in a way speaks very well to the first part of what I liked about the realists, because in a way, this is what they were saying. They're saying, look, the good thing is if you have social integration, you're not going to have to rely on coercive muscle very much. So you don't have to have this totalitarian monster with clay feet, right? okay? Um, I think that's right, but I also think the other aspect of the argument remains powerful, that there still may be moments when push comes to shove, even if they're hard to conceive of within the American Federal Republic. Um, but of course, we are already a deeply integrated polity. Um, there, you know, there, there is the possibility where force would have to be employed. Alex. Yeah. 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 I changed my mind about his role in this, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those, those are good questions. Um, you're right, there is a selection bias here. I mean, um, there are people in the realist camp who don't fit this story, okay? So I'm struggling, I'm writing a book on this now, as I mentioned to you, and I'm, the way I'm doing this now is I'm saying there is a subset of classical realists, um, and they're not just peripheral figures. We're talking here E.H. Carr and Morgenthau and Niebuhr, the most important classical realists, according to everybody. And I think, I'm gonna call them the progressive realists. And they are different from example, George Kennan, who I think indeed, or Kissinger. I mean, I think their theories indeed are quite conservative in some ways, you know, institutionally and so on. So that's how I want to deal with that. I mean, you're right, much of what I said here in the first part in terms of intellectual history does, is not accurate in terms of um, some of the realists. Now in terms of Carl Schmidt, I mean, I, maybe this is too autobiographical, but I'll just tell you how I got into doing this project. I wrote a book on Schmidt, and I came across, I had read some Morgenthau, and I wrote this chapter in the book about Morgenthau and Schmidt. <clears throat> and um, that's been, I mean, this is funny how these things work out, you know. That part of the book has sort of gotten picked up. And, you know, in a way that's quite flattering, of course. Except um, I now decided it's, too, it's really heavy-handed. I mean, I, um, you know, um, Morgenthau had, Morgenthau engaged briefly with Schmidt about the concept of the political. Morgenthau actually accused Schmidt, and I think he was right to have done this, of having plagiarized his doctoral dissertation. 
uh, in ways that I'd be happy to go into. Okay? Uh, and I also think Morgenthau later on followed all of Schmidt's writings, even when he's in exile. It doesn't mention him because, of course, by 1945, Schmidt has now outed himself as a terrible fascist, right? And you can see why Morgenthau didn't want to talk about this sort of story. But, I, you know, I've just decided um, it's, it's just it's too one-sided to play on that side of the story. There is a background there with Schmidt. Um, a lot of these people on the left in the 20s and 30s are debating Schmidt, arguing with him. That doesn't make them Schmidtians. So I, I just have to say, I think I made a mistake, and I partly I feel like now what I'm doing is correcting myself and sort of saying, wait a minute, you know, let's not just stick Morgenthau in this category. He's a very rich thinker. And if I could be very silly and autobiographical about this, if you don't mind, I gave my dad um, actually was a student of Hans Morgenthau's very briefly as an undergraduate at City College in New York. And I said to my dad, you know, you know, I wrote this thing in Morgenthau. Maybe you want to read it. My dad said, no, I want to go split some wood. And, okay. And then I gave it to him. And he said, oh, I'll read your stew. And they, but he got very upset. And he got very upset. And he said, you know, you're just, I'm not an expert in this, but you're just missing something. This is not the Hans Morgenthau I knew. The Hans Morgenthau I know, yes, he's a realist, but he was sort of, you know, he was against the Vietnam War. And this, I'm sorry, this can't be right. And you know, maybe, maybe that's the silly reason. Maybe there's some Freudian story one could tell here. I don't know. We'll go down that. But I, I just think that's overstated. Um, okay. Uh, so what is realism? Yeah. What I don't. That's right. One has to come up then with a proper definition of this, which I haven't done. I think a lot of the things people have said about the category of realism remain basically true. So the people I'm talking about are all dealing with the security dilemma. I think that's a, a realist theme. Um, I also think there is a, uh, a political ethics which they share, which is distinct to them. Um, and I started talking about that, but I'll just, again, give you the very short version of it. They all are preoccupied with the very important fact that in moral and political life, sometimes doing good things produces immoral results, and sometimes doing immoral things produces good results. And they think, I mean, a lot of the critique of moralism, I think, is really about a failure of people to deal with that. Um, there's a wonderful book by a guy named Cody called Messy Morality. I just came across this, where he goes through and works his way through all the different things the realists meant by moralism. You know, I think that is a, a common theme for these thinkers. Um, so, I, so a lot of the conventional things we associate with realism, I'm satisfied with. What I'm not satisfied with is the argument that these themes are necessarily uh, anti-reformist in terms of global reform. I think if you understand these arguments, um, take them carefully, look at them carefully. There's no reason they are fundamentally anti-reformist. So that's the part of the traditional definition, if you will, or at least one part of it I don't like. Yeah. There was some other hand. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think that has to be part of the story here. I guess I, I wouldn't say I'm optimistic about this, and maybe this is naive, but I would say um, 
if you think modern government has to have something like a welfare state, I think it does. We could argue about what kind of welfare state, right? Um, you know, you're going to have to, how is that going to work? Well, you have to have social integration, right, at the national level or at the uh, uh, post-national level, if that's what you're thinking about. And I do think, yes, ultimately you're going to have to have, um, even with all of the things we know about how states themselves are parasitical, it seems to me that has historically been an important function performed by states. I mean, certainly in this country. Maybe I'm really being too simplistic about this, but if you look at the development of the American state and the American welfare state, first of all, what's interesting is those two things are intertwined, it seems to me. If you look at the development of state capacities in the United States, it's been tied to you know, the Civil War and then the extension, let's say, of social benefits, medical benefits to Civil War veterans. Uh, certainly, the American state gets built up during the Depression, and what goes on there, at least in part, is redistribution, albeit of a modest character. So I do think, I mean, let me put it this way. If, if you are, if you, I, I do, how else are you going to do it, it seems to me? Okay, I don't see what other institutions. It's a very simple argument. I think this is something states have done more or less successfully. They don't always do this. They often fail at it. So in that way, you're absolutely right. One of the reasons they fail at it is because they don't have an integrated society in the ways that I was trying to describe. But I, I, I mean, I'm giving you a, evasive answer because I don't want to say I'm optimistic, but I would turn it around and say um, I do think ultimately states, uh, this, is, this is the role. If they are not going to do this, I don't know who else is going to do it, frankly. Northwest Airlines is not going to redistribute, right? I mean, so what institution is going to do it? You know, I mean, so they, we, ha we have to. If, and if they, we ha they haven't done it well, we have to figure out how to make sure they can do it well. I don't have the answer to that, unfortunately. Yeah. If we see the leading edges of this, let's take immigration of Muslims yeah. to Europe and a rejection, even by liberal types. Peter Kaplan is famous his book saying Muslims can't be European. Is that right? I haven't seen that. Yeah. So you have yeah. people arguing that this is this is just not civilized, yeah. right? And yet now we have a global place yeah. where we're going to take cultures which right. Europeans recently decided can't be combined <clears> with an EU structure. Mm -hmm. Right. The Netherlands, uh, in France, uh, all, all over the place. Yeah. And there's no revolution for them. Since even at the national level, where state institutions yeah. are very strong. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. The only thing I would say is, I guess I would. Um, turn things around a little bit and say, well, you know, one can be a bit more hopeful. I mean, the EU obviously is uh, is indeed a much more deeply integrated political community than it was many decades ago, or even recently. So something has happened. So, you know, it's not so, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are always going to be, even at the national level, challenges to what I think the realists were calling society or social integration. There's no question about that, complicated questions about that. But again, they thought that over time, if you figured out how to do this the right way, I mean, the EU is a very interesting example because um, Mitt Romney, as maybe some of you know, uh, he plays a very important influence. I don't want to say important, but he certainly is an influence on the neo-functionalists, okay, um, who do play a very important role as far as I understand. This isn't my area of expertise, but I've been reading a little bit about this. Uh, you know, people who are in, uh, committed to the EU at that time, the European market and the European community, they're reading this stuff and they're thinking about how can we 
begin building up a European identity. And to some extent, Europe is sort of a place where I think this theory that I was describing actually played itself out to some extent. I mean, what, what happened in the European community to some extent is you had countries focusing on these down-to-earth technical and economic tasks and, you know, uh, very cautiously, not, you know, not beginning with, not doing the top-down thing. The people who wanted that would declare, here's our European constitution, we're now a European people. That was, that was totally unrealistic after World War II. But beginning by focusing on um, practical tasks which nation states had a hard time resolving, dealing with on their own, and then over time some sort of identity coming out of this. So I think there's actually some support if you look at the EU that this realist uh, alliance with functionalist theory, if you want to call it that, has some empirical support. But it still does, I mean, you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. Yeah. 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 The requirements then of the kind of identity and belongings you're describing That's right. strong. So, uh, Juan Matrano, who's written this book, Framing Europe, mm-hmm. and I were at a conference in Potsdam, just the European consortium for research in, in September. And all the Europeanizers were you know, yeah. lamenting how few people are European. Yeah. It's, it's less than 6 or 8%. We've been told. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. But there's a lot of European institutionalism going right. on. Right. And so they don't have anywhere near the social consensus that would be required to do re- real research. Yeah. And they're fully aware of that. Uh, so, but then you can take from the outsider's perspective, what, is, what are you trying to accomplish with this community? Avoid war? Mm-hmm. Matrano's book, Framing Europe, is the principles you use. It's all about how thin mm-hmm. the conception of this is among Europeans. It's a market. It's a war-avoiding right. institution. It's efficiencies. It's all utilitarianism. Yeah. And he says, isn't that terrible? Right. That's all we need. Yeah. And then the cosmopolitans may be on stronger ground. Right. Right. If, it, if you're not going to require these really difficult political moves like redistributing wealth and that sort of yeah. thing, all you're going to try to do is manage market efficiencies, avoid war, solve security dilemmas. Yeah. Why do we need these deeper, very right. difficult to accomplish uh, amounts of social integration, which strikes me as very far off? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, I, 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 yeah. Sort of yeah. But then I would say two things. I'd say, number one, the cosmopolitans don't properly understand themselves because if you look at what they're doing, uh, it's not at what you're describing. I mean, they actually want to have some relatively ambitious, robust, post-national, maybe even global democracy. So your argument, your cosmopolitanism is very different from theirs. Yours is sort of a, it's a very thin one. And that's, I don't, you know, I don't think that's the dominant, you know, maybe it's still a powerful argument, but it's not their argument. And then I guess the other thing I would say, um, this is something I didn't have time to sketch out, but a premise, I think, for both the cosmopolitans today, and I think, and although this is typically neglected for the realists, or at least the, the progressive realists that I'm looking at, is that the nation state actually can't do a lot of the things that it historically has been able to do on its own. So there's a real problem in terms of you know, what nation states can get done in terms of things. And in other words, you know, we have to start thinking about um, more robust forms of post-national governance in terms of many different policy issues. I mean, that's an argument. Um, I mentioned Carr. This is something Carr, I mean, I, he has some very interesting things to say about this. He was, you know, he actually said, um, you know, I, he was skeptical that you could actually have much of a welfare state except in a couple of well-positioned, powerful states. He said the little countries are going to have a hard time doing this. They can't afford it. They're going to be fighting for resources. I mean, you know, I think there's actually something to that argument. So even in 1942, I think it is, he was saying if you're committed to the welfare state, even of a modest variety, 
we have to start thinking about doing this. Uh, he's, he's very cautious, not a unified European state, certainly not then, but he, although he does say down the road maybe, but some sort of European-wide social system. So I think one would have to have an argument about what the nation state can and cannot do. I also think, just to maybe make things too confusing, I mean, I do think one should be careful about understating what nation states can do. Obviously, obviously nation states do many things quite effectively, but um, you know, there are, you know, there are some certainly security issues. It seems to me. I mean, this is this is where I think the realists are strongest. I mean, they're in the they're, in the 40s and 50s, they correctly were saying, uh, look, small countries, you know, they're going to have to become part of a block which is dominated by one of the big boys. Otherwise, they really cannot secure themselves very well. That's pretty much what has happened. You know, I mean, NATO and so on. Um, but again, but yeah, one would have to have a conversation about that. Yeah, Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody likes this because it goes. I'm sorry, I don't, didn't like it either. Yeah. Maybe I've just been teaching these guys yeah. wrong. Yeah. Let me throw something out of that. One of when I talk about the core of realism. Yeah. Right. By um, oh, uh, Nick Wheeler and Kenneth Booth on the security dilemma, where they go through the debate about it and they try to argue, I think, very effectively against um, reading it in a sort of fatalistic way. You know, that the security dilemma means we always have to worry about the other guy so much. Uh, you know, one has to sort of, the Mersheimer sort of uh, interpretation of it, right? That one has to constantly worry about shoring up one's defensive position because the other guy, you don't know what they're going to do, there's uncertainty. And they point out, first of all, they make a good exegetical point, first of all. Um, Hertz became uncomfortable with that. Hertz actually says in the late 50s, it's, in a, it's part of the book on um, uh, atomic power. So it's not, the, his book from 51 is where he introduces the term, political realism, political idealism. Then he has the book on, the, on atomic warfare. And there he makes this very interesting comment. Well, you know, it's interesting if um, leaders become aware of the security dilemma, if they know that the other side is faced with the same fears and uncertainty that we are, you know, this might sort of open the door for some sort of constructive policy whereby at least you could mitigate it a bit. And Booth and Wheeler, I think, make a very powerful argument um, claiming that this actually is sort of what happened in the context of the negotiations between uh, Reagan and Gorbachev. That Gorbachev, you, you have a situation where the, Gorbachev in particular is very sensitive to the pressures the Americans face, their fears, and he sort of directly addresses them. And in part because of that, they try to move beyond um, a, a fatalistic arms race, which we had been in, right? So I think the security dilemma, this is a very, this is something I just, in the book I'm writing, I have a section on the security dilemma. I'm sure I, I would interpret it as being a bit more flexible and open um, than many people, who are not necessarily as hostile to global reform necessarily as one might think it is. Uh, both. I think the I think the idea of it does not. Let me put it bluntly. The idea of it does not 
Um, I think it's a powerful idea, but I, and I think it, re, it powerfully reminds us of all the problems, um, all the impediments to moving beyond uh, a situation of anarchy. There's no question about that. But I think it would be a mistake to see it as requiring us to be sort of frozen in to the international status quo. You know, in other words, one could mitigate the security dilemma. One could maybe move to a different international system where it would operate somewhat differently. That's, that's the argument. I, I would try to make following um, Booth and Wheeler. Uh, Niebuhr, I, I think Niebuhr, uh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I've become fascinated by Niebuhr. I'm a little embarrassed by this, I guess. But um, I think the stuff on original sin, his view of human nature, I think people also read that um, very dogmatically. If you, uh, you know, if you if you sort through what he means by this, I mean, this is this is a very complicated question because he 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 basically is criticizing a lot of traditional Christianity simultaneously. So in a way, he's an orthodox Christian saying, yes, original sin is crucial. That's there's no question about that. But if you look at what he does, he's criticizing, for example, an Augustinian view that one inherits this that one is sort of doomed because of this, that's also part of his argument, all right? And I think the gist of what he's saying there in some ways is um, actually a very powerful uh, moral intuition, which one does not have to be an Orthodox Christian to accept. Namely, um, you know, even when we're doing good, there is evil taking place. You know, I have two daughters, this is my example, and I love them equally, and I know that I'm always, I, I cannot possibly treat them fully equally. You know, there's always someone getting, and they remind you of this all the time, remind me of this all the time. You know, this is the nature of human existence. And that's it. I don't want to trivialize what he's doing, but if you look at what he's up to, it's, I think it's a very interesting argument about the unavoidability of um, people doing things which we universally consider evil, even as we avoid them. And then it's a call for, again, an ethic of responsibility in the spirit of Weber to minimize that, to be aware of that and to minimize that. Now, I don't think that's an argument for... Uh, that forces us into the international status quo. On the contrary, um, one of the things I found fascinating reading him is how his, he thinks if you're an Orthodox Christian, one in fact has to be committed to far-reaching political and social reform. Now, the reason this gets neglected is people don't look enough at, I think, a lot of the writings in the 30s and 40s, um, early 40s, where he says this very bluntly. In the 50s, he does become a much more, much more cautious thinker, and this doesn't come out as clearly. But um, his, I mean, I'll just give you my quick take in his argument. He basically argues uh, Christian ethics is an ethic of love, it can ne- uh, of universal love. Uh, you know, so it's a very demanding model of moral reciprocity, uh, reciprocity of moral respect. He thinks that this can never be uh, fulfilled. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a transcendent ideal, ultimately. We, we, can never, we can never have a human community where this moral idea is fulfilled. However, uh, as Christians... Okay, this is his audience. Um, we are morally obligated to do everything we possibly can to try to fulfill it. And that then leads him consistently to argue for um, forms of political and social order which he thinks do a better job of that than the status quo. Now, if, you th- if, this, if this sounds peculiar to you, just uh, the moral man, immoral society argument, I mean, that's where I think one of the places you get this. I mean, he's very worried, obviously, about the immorality of all social groups, but particularly of the nation state. And the argument there is that they conflict with this robust, universalistic idea of Christian love. All right, um, they force us to do parochial, selfish things. You know, we have to kill outsiders. 
Uh, we have to take resources from other members of other countries. And this for him is sinful. Um, and therefore, one is obligated to come up with a political and social system which does less of that than ours. And he, I mean, I think I read him, and I think it's there, just saying this is why. And he's very, very, I'll stop at this. He's very, he's very radical in the 30s. I was amazed by this. I mean, he, he called himself a Christian Marxist. And that doesn't change until about 1940, where um, I think it's actually the, the Nazi-Soviet pact. There's something that goes on there where he gets much more skeptical of, um, and even in the 40s, he calls himself a socialist. But this is why. But that's, a, again, a bigger conversation. Sorry. I, yeah. I'll try to answer the questions more concisely. Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there is some shared background. I, I would be more skeptical than you are in terms of overstating it. You know, I mean, a lot of intellectuals in the 30s and 30s and early 40s are on the left. I mean, it's stunning. Okay, um, a lot of the neocons weren't just on the left; they were Trotskyites, and I actually think that is very important. Um, <laughs> I know it sounds crazy, but uh, you know, I, I think there's a. This is something. I was just at a conference on post-war conservatism, and there was a really interesting paper on Burnham who was one of these guys. He had been the uh, chair, I guess, of the Socialist Workers' Party. I, did, I mean, I knew he had this background. And then goes, becomes an editor of the National Review, becomes a neocon, gets the Medal of Freedom from President Reagan. I mean, you have a lot of these fellows. So I think they're the story. I mean, I'll tell you my story. My story is you, they're always correctly, I think, very critical of the Soviet Union in contrast to other people on the left. Um, they sort of lose their socialist sympathies otherwise. Uh, and then what remains of the Trotskyism is this belief in a revolution via violence, a global revolution. It goes from being a global socialist revolution to a democratic revolution. And the, the carrier of it becomes a different one, I think. I think the carrier now has become the United States, you know, in Iraq. And it, but I, so I, so I see a, a, a pattern of thinking. I see continuity there. I don't think there's that much. You know, for example, um, Strauss is always very critical of the idea of a world state. Morgenthau, even in 1929, um, disagrees. He writes in this book, which was never translated. It's, a, it's his dissertation. It's on international law. And um, they're both responding, this goes to Alex's question, they're both speaking to Schmidt. Schmidt was very critical of world government. Schmidt said, you have no world government, you have no, you have no political anymore. Because the political means you have these existential friend-foe divides. You have divisions where there's at least a looming possibility that you know, the enemy gets killed. And world state means the end of this. means the end of the political. And then you get a sort of aesthetic critique, I would call it, of the world state. Uh, people will just engage in commerce. There won't be seriousness anymore. 
you know, um, because it's not. Yeah, and, and that's I think Strauss picks up on that. I think Strauss there actually is closer to Schmidt. Morgenthau, in contrast, says I don't see the problem. You know, if we had a, a world government, he says I don't think this is going to happen. But I don't I don't get this. I mean, okay, people would engage in trade. Uh, we would we would have politics. We wouldn't kill each other. Okay, fine. You know, so I, I think there's actually a very different position there um, than what you get in Strauss. I mean, I, by the way, I think there's a great you know, I know Alex has worked on this, but I think there's a great study getting waiting to get written if you do political thought about debates about the world state. Because my, my sense is the same arguments come up again and again against it. You know, you get sort of the argument from Kant. It would mean universal monarchy. It would mean despotism. And as I'm going through these debates, I think that just appears again and again and again. And people don't really interrogate it very carefully, you know. Um, and partly I'm interested in the thinkers I'm in, I've been talking about because I think they're trying, they, they want to take that seriously and they also want to respond to it, you know, which I think is a fruitful way. So I, don't, I guess I don't think there's that much, as that, you know, that much heritage that's shared, background that's shared there. I do think, this is also a comment, I do think some of the neocons, they see themselves as realists. Uh, they call themselves sometimes a democratic realist. Um, you know, I just don't, uh, well, I mean, the, the, the yeah, I mean, there, there are things in realism they pull to. To say they're not realists is silly. Uh, I think they tap into elements of the realist tradition, which, in my view, represent its weakest contributions. <laughs> okay, uh, certain kind of conservative aspects of realism, which I don't think are actually that important for some of these so-called progressive realists. Yeah, that there's, is. There's also uh, a point to be made that you, you may be stumbling onto a sort of fundamental, uh, if not paradox, contradiction in how we're going to go about getting a world state. Because you know, if we, you know, if we buy your argument that you need a fairly robust level of social integration, and I think that's that's a fairly easy uh, point to accept, then yeah, we may have that in Europe. We may have that in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even China can barely control, you know, its western provinces, and this really is this is a resource allocation and resource redistribution question. So, the, so I mean, uh, what I want to say is, is there a, a case to be made that resource redistribution is something that you know a global world uh, a world state would normatively want to do, but also something that a global uh, a world state has to presuppose is already happening? Yeah. I guess two things. I mean, one, one of the things I should have said before in response to uh, Rick, I didn't clarify this very well. I, I don't want my argument to hinge too much, or the argument to hinge too much on the possibility of a world, world state. This is why I was vague. You're picking up on this. I would say post-national world state. I, I just, and the reason I did that is, frankly, because some of the realists thought we needed a world state. They thought that international anarchy in the context of nuclear warfare um, was a dangerous thing. They, they're actually, they, they buy some of the traditional arguments about deterrence, but they ultimately are skeptical of how far you want to go with those arguments. This is how I read these people. Okay? And so they thought a world state, ultimately, you had, it, you'd have to go there. Um, okay. Um, but they also thought, and I think this is, and this is why I'm also somewhat vague here, 
as a long, that's a, may, maybe a long-term goal. And that what we're talking about in the meantime is something like the EU. We're talking about regionalization or post-national statehood beyond the nation state, but certainly not a world state. So just to clarify that, um, so I, you know, because I don't think a world state, uh, it's, it's, I mean, in the foreseeable future, a world state which engages in economic redistribution, that's, please, that's Santa Claus. I agree with you on that, okay? Now, the other thing I wanted to say is I, I don't think, I don't want too much to hinge on the argument either about economic redistribution. You know, we've, the argument has moved in a certain direction. For me, that's an example, and a clear example, though some people disagreed with this, about how the state is crucial um, in terms of resolving dire social conflicts. Nonetheless, I think you can make the same argument without talking about economic redistribution. This is what I should have said before to Rick, I think, right? I mean, even if you have an EU where you don't have an EU welfare state, it seems to me you're going to have intense political conflicts about all sorts of things which may have nothing to do with economic redistribution, where in my view you're going to want to have an integrated European society and I think some sort of European state to resolve those conflicts. I mean, you're going to have conflicts about sorts of things we're talking about. Immigrants, um, you know, gypsies getting, Roma getting beaten up in, I don't know, some part of Eastern Europe. And um, I mean, this is, this is not far-fetched to me, right? Um, a, a, a country in putting, tolerating truly xenophobic policies, tolerating the abuse of immigrants or of gypsies, let's say, and the national government there not doing anything about it. Um, it seems to me if you're going to have a coherent European political community, if you're serious about that, one of its functions would have to be able to intervene in that situation. Okay, That has nothing to do with economic redistribution. So I guess I want to back up. I, I, maybe I got us down the... Yeah. Yeah. No. Why are you apologizing? That's a. No, it's not. It's a fundamental question. See, I um, there certainly have to. I, I think you. Your question, in a way, is. Let me put it this way: at the national level, part of that question is what is nationhood, right? And there, as we know, many different ways by which nationhood can be constituted. Okay. And and I, there's no and. Um, I'll go back to Niebuhr here. I, I, Niebuhr, in another book, people, I think, neglect a book he wrote in 59 about this whole question. He's, he's a long, long discussion of this. He has a list of factors. He says common political culture, common political struggle, ethnicity, language. Um, he, I forget, but there's a dozen of these things, ways in which people understand themselves as part of a nation. And then he correctly says, you know what's really interesting? Basically, you can, there are nations which miss almost all of these, <laughs> except maybe one or two. You know, so he, India, for example, tremendously pluralistic place. How many different languages? I forget the number. Hundreds of languages spoken in India. I mean, it's stunning. Yet, yet it's a coherent nation. So why? I mean, it's a very interesting question. So I, I don't think there's an easy answer to that question uh, in terms of what values would share. The only thing one would have to share, one certainly has to share something, and it has to be substantial enough, right, such that we're willing to... Um, you know, uh, there has to be a, a certain level of trust and a certain level of cooperation and a certain willingness to, um, I don't know how else to put it, stand up for the other guy or the other gal at times. You know, if, um, if uh, you know, someone is attacked by a terrorist, maybe this is a bad example, but there has to be some, people are just shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, I don't care, you know. Uh, 
it seems to me that kind of nation is not going to survive very long, right? So there has to be some sort of sense of belonging. One thing I would say is I'd be, I'm a little worried with this term, just as I said before, with identity. This is the fashionable term. Let's talk identity formation. Uh, people used to talk about values. I think that that leads us to think about this in terms of, um, yeah, and I think it misses the, the dynamic, or it might lead us to miss the dynamic social processes that are important. You know, I don't consciously, I don't know if I consciously share that many values. I mean, I have different political views than a lot of Americans, but I, sorry? Yeah, okay. Right, that's right. You're right, that's absolutely right. But I also think there are lots of informal things, which we don't even think about. And you may only become aware of um, when, you're, when you're in an alien situation. I think that's also part of it. Uh, and just forms, of be- just forms of behavior that, I mean, I was just, this is a, maybe a bad example as well. I was in uh, Germany as a graduate student. And I saw one of these horrible uh, skinhead attacks on um, this, I think, Polish kid who was, and I was uh, flabbergasted by, um, you know, it was in Eastern Germany, just the indifference of uh, people walking by. They just kept walking by. And, um, you know, I believed at the time, maybe this is naive, but I, I would say at the time, and this would not ha- I don't think this would happen today. Maybe this would have happened to uh, African Americans in the South. We know it happened, right? But I, I don't think this would happen somehow. I mean, for me, that was sort of an example of how you know, again, maybe an illusion, how we Americans would have, somebody would have said, what's going on there? They wouldn't have been heroic, but I was just stunned by, and the reason for this is not that the Germans are less heroic, but there, there are some, under, they, at that particular moment, this is 1990, there clearly was a widespread sense in that part of Germany in particular, you know, these people are parasites and they deserve what they get. I mean, just terrible views. And um, that was sort of an underlying consensus and it was related to certain forms of action, obviously. And I like to think at the time that was different from what one might see here. So I th- anyhow, there's a lot of intangibles here. It has to do with consciously shared values versus and uh, things that aren't. We don't even think about. I think sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah. So. I think it's a testament to. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. It is that we didn't get you ten years ago. Well, that's very nice to say. So. Still I'm sure you're at one thirty. Nice when you're, you're still saying that after my talk. So that's good. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you coming. Yeah, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you all for staying. <laughs> Thanks. I'm still thinking, as you can tell, this question, I'm just...